We turn in the inspired Word of God to the epistle of Paul to Titus, Titus chapter 1. Titus 1, and the text for the sermon will be the first four verses. I'll not reread those verses, so pay a special attention to, the, to those verses. We'll read the whole chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested His word through preaching which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. There ends our reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, in my own congregation, I just began last week a series on the epistle to Titus, and in beginning a series on Titus, main reason why I ended up in this, in this epistle was that I have done series on other genres in the Old Testament and the New Testament, history and Psalms and Proverbs, and one of the genres of the Bible that I had not preached through yet is one of the pastoral epistles, and Titus is one of the three of those epistles, along with First and Second Timothy. The individual Titus was the friend and the traveling companion of Paul, his fellow laborer in the gospel according to the commission of Jesus Christ. Titus was a Greek who was uncircumcised, and in that he is distinguished from another similar character in early New Testament history, which is Timothy. Timothy was circumcised and thereby incorporated into the Christian faith through circumcision although circumcision properly understood through faith. And in that way, Titus was incorporated also through the faith in that which circumcision points to, faith in Jesus Christ. And Titus was, under Paul's instruction, advised and even forbidden from being circumcised in order that he might be a demonstration of that gospel truth that he might be included in the church and covenant of Jesus Christ, not through the law of the Old Testament, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's evident in this epistle that Titus had the respect and trust of the Apostle Paul and that Titus was appointed to the island of Crete and left there. He was left in charge there in Crete. And when you think of Crete, you're not looking at the island which is just off the coast of Palestine and just south of Asia Minor, but you are thinking of, that's Cyprus. Go further west, and further west you'll find the island of Crete. You might find it on a map when you get home tonight. And what we need to know about Crete, at least for our purpose now, is that Crete was a fledgling church. There were things wanting in Crete. That's what we're told in verse 5. There were things that needed to be set in order. They didn't even have elders ordained yet. And so Titus was set there to ordain those elders and to put things in order and to begin instructing them in the basics of the Christian religion. So the epistle to Titus is a very simple epistle. It's a sister epistle to the epistles to Timothy, wherein things are more developed and spelled out more fully because the churches in Asia Minor were more mature. And that explains the subtle difference in approach in this epistle to Titus. The epistle itself is addressed to Titus, that, will, that which we'll consider out of verse 4, to Titus. And so Titus is reading this whole letter directly addressed to himself. And yet, we'll see in the course of the sermon tonight that the epistle in being addressed to Titus was not just for Titus. It was for God's people. And God's people needed to know what was written in this letter to Titus so that they could understand the authority that he had and his motivation in being in ministering there in Crete, they might have asked, Who are you, Titus? What are you doing here? Who sent you to do this work? What's your interest as you live among us and work among us and teach us and teach our children? Those are significant questions that any church might ask of one who seemingly suddenly is laboring among them. And for the purpose of answering those questions, they also needed to know who Paul was. You say, Paul sent you. Who is this Paul? What's his authority? What's his motivation? What's his goal in all of his travels and ministry? And this epistle answers those questions. This, or this text answers those questions. The first four verses of Titus chapter 1 lay a foundation and give credibility both to the whole epistle, so that when Titus takes the epistle and says, the Apostle Paul has written this unto me, and now I'm following what the the Apostle Paul has taught me to do. That the epistle has credibility, but also so that Titus would have credibility among them. You would not, I trust, receive just anyone as the pastor of your church. You ought not. You may not. You must receive one who is lawfully ordained. Even one whom you are assured is appointed by Christ Himself to labor here among you. And all of our church order in the early articles of the church order see to it that a congregation that receives a minister in our denomination receives a minister with that assurance that this is one whom God and the Lord Jesus Christ has appointed to preach the Word from our pulpit. Let's consider the letter to Titus, really the introduction to the letter, these first four verses under three points. First of all, it is a letter from God's servant. It is a letter for God's elect and a letter with God's blessing. From God's servant, servant, for God's elect, and with God's blessing. All of Paul's epistles begin with an introduction just like this. They all follow the same basic pattern. There is an identification of who's writing, who is he, and giving an identification of who is this letter meant for, intended for. It's from Paul and to Titus. There's the basic elements of it. Then there's always some kind of reference to the apostolic credentials, although it varies how much detail is given. 
And in this case, we have one of the more lengthy um, defense of Paul's credentials. And there is an indication in these introductions about the purpose of the epistle or the occasion or even the content or theme. And I think all of those can be found here in this epistle as well, in this introduction as well. A couple of things are noteworthy about the introduction to Titus. What, when we take all of the epistles of the New Testament, especially Paul's epistles, and we put them right next to each other, you'd notice especially a couple of things. You'd notice, first of all, that there's an emphasis on the office of Paul. That there are three descriptive phrases concerning him and his office. And so, here there is a need, evidently, for a justification of the authority of Paul and the authority that's derived from it to Titus. And then the other thing that you'd recognize when you set them all next to each other is that there is a that there is this is the longest, almost the longest of all the introductions to the epistles, in terms of the number of words, just as a measuring stick. Only Galatians and Romans have a longer introduction. And here too, there's a need. There's a need for these extra words. There's a need for this longer explanation of what's going on here, what's going to happen here with this letter, so that the Cretes can understand what Titus is teaching them. As we examine then this letter through the introduction, we'll notice first of all that it is a letter from God's servant. And as we examine the author, the human author of this epistle, we're going to learn something not only about Paul, but we're going to learn something about the author of this epistle. And that's going to help us understand the epistle itself. And we're also going to learn something about the office of the ministry. Let's look at those three phrases. The first one is right at the beginning. Paul, a servant of God. A servant of God. Really, that means he called himself a slave. A slave or a servant in this context mean the exact same thing. Empty out all the negative connotations from the idea of slavery in our day. And instead focus on this reality. The essence of a servant or a slave is that they are not their own but they belong to someone else. The Master owns them. The Master has paid a price. He's paid a sum of money so that this servant is now His. And He may tell that servant whatever He wants to do. In fact, the servant may never do what He wants to do. The servant may only do what the Master tells him to do. He is always subject to the will of His Master in every aspect of His being. And Paul identifies himself as the servant of God. First and foremost, he is the servant of God. He says, in effect, I'm not my own, and I don't belong either to any man, but I belong to God, and I do the will of God, and only the will of God. I belong to the Almighty God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everything I do, I do not for myself, and I do for no man, but I do for God and for the realization of God's will. I don't aim to please any of you. I don't aim to please your neighbors. I don't aim to please your enemies. I aim to please God and only God. And as I write this letter to you, I write as a servant. And what I have written in this letter, you must receive as a word that is not born out of my will, but a word that has its origins in God's will through me. And such is the character of all ministers, ministers of the Gospel, and all office bearers. And such is the character of all believers. Is that not our only comfort in life and death? that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't live according to my own will. I don't need to please any man, any woman. I serve God. 
And for ministers in particular, this means that when one is occupying the office of minister, he must banish every self-serving goal from his view so that there is nothing in front of him that he hopes to accomplish. And that's one of the questions that is often asked as I've had the privilege of serving on the theological school committee in these Applicants to the seminary are without fail asked this question, do you have any goals as you apply to be trained for the ministry? Do you have any goals? And almost always, they have an understanding of the work that they pursue, that it is not self-serving work, but a work for the glory of God. And also those who are servants of God in the ministry must also banish all pride and boasting that they might claim to themselves simply by having the office. So there is one man who comes and stands in this pulpit. Seems pretty special. But no man can mount up to this pulpit in his own strength. Only God can place His servant here. And when that office is granted, it is never granted because that man is so worthy that he has distanced himself from all of the other people. But only because God in His mercy is pleased to use weak means to fulfill His will. The second phrase that describes Paul's office and the author of the epistle is that he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is one appointed by Jesus Christ Himself, commissioned with doing the work that Christ once did in the flesh on earth to represent the cause of His kingdom, to represent Himself, to preach the Word. These apostles were equipped for that special work. They went into the darkness of the world that did not know Christ. And they were commissioned with proclaiming the Gospel and in that way, establishing churches, ordaining elders, training men like Titus and Timothy to be ministers. And they were also given the power to do miracles so that the Word that they proclaimed would be verified as truth and as divine. Because only one One who could do miracles must evidently be from God. And so in claiming himself as an apostle, rightfully, Paul reveals that as he writes and as he serves, he does so with the authority of Jesus Christ Himself. Once crucified and now ascended Lord. And as he labors and as he writes, he does so representing Jesus Christ. A visible and personal representative of Christ. His ambassador And so as the Cretes and as Titus receive this word and they read that claim of apostleship, everything this human writer speaks to them is transformed. Now they must understand this in a different light. Now we must receive Him as one that Christ Himself has put in our midst. It adds adds an abundance of weight to the ministry of Titus and his application of this epistle in Crete. And the third phrase that is, describes Paul in his office is that he was the act of preaching and the word through preaching, in verse 3, is committed unto him according to the commandment of God our Savior. And although in verse 3 his main point is to expound on his hope that he introduces in verse 2, he is also explaining that Further, his work as an apostle, the primary task of the apostles was not the doing of miracles, but the preaching of the Word that God had given to them. And in verse 3, when you read that word for preaching, that's not the word for preaching that's sometimes used to describe the content of the preaching. The content of the preaching being the Gospel. So, one who is an evangelist. But here, the word used for preaching is the word that translates better to herald or heralding. And so this is the herald is the one that the king appoints and the king sends and the king gives a letter or a word 
and commands them, make this word known to the people that I send you to. And as you make that word known, you will make that word known with all of my authority. And if any harm comes to you, then I will take it as an offense against me. And if anyone will obey not this word, then that is an off- the word that you bring, that is an offense against me. And such is the character of preaching. The preaching is not merely the word of the man who stands in the pulpit, provided that man is a lawfully ordained minister proclaiming and expounding the Word of the Scriptures. The preaching is not man's Word. The preaching is God's Word and even the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, as believers, receive the preaching with that kind of reverence. The reverence commended in 1 Thessalonians that they received not the preaching and the Word of God, not as the Word of man, but as the Word of God. And ministers share this aspect of the apostolic office. They have been committed the act of preaching, the work of preaching. They have been committed the Word. And that idea of having that committed to them means that it's been entrusted to them. It's been put in their care. And so, as Paul has already described himself as an apostle, one who moves at the command of Christ and speaks in the name of Christ, and he's already described himself as a servant who's doing only the will of his God in heaven, now he adds weight not only to himself, but he adds weight to the message. This message has been committed to me. And this work of preaching it has been entrusted to me. I cannot fail my God. I must proclaim the Word. That God gives that treasure to ministers is a weighty thing and a cause for thanksgiving. It's a cause for thanksgiving for us that that message and that priceless treasure has been preserved through so many generations, even going beyond Paul, beyond the earthly ministry of Jesus into the days of the prophets. They've all carried that same treasure. Just imagine, although the disciples and the apostles never carried purse or script, they didn't carry an abundance of things with them. Just imagine that they had over their shoulder a most precious possession and they would die for that possession. They would be scourged for that possession. They would give up everything and anything for that possession, which is the word of truth concerning Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And every week that an ordained minister mounts this pulpit, even in your midst, they carry with them that treasure, and that treasure is right before them, and that treasure is in their heart, and they have this duty from heaven's throne, and Jesus Christ Himself, make the message known that I have given to you. And let no man cover up that treasure that I've given to you. And let no man take anything away from that treasure that I've given to you. And let no man add anything to that treasure I've given to you. Make my message known. This is my will for you. And this is my will for the people who you will speak to. We need preachers to deliver unto us that which has been committed to them. God is pleased that all the riches of Jesus Christ should be given not only to a few, but to the whole of His church. All the riches of Christ in Him crucified delivered to everyone who is a member of Jesus Christ, member of His body. Everything He bought with His precious blood, everything that's His and He is pleased to share with His people, you know the means whereby we receive all those benefits, don't you? The means is faith. And you know where faith comes from. And how faith is worked in us. It comes from the Holy Spirit and it's worked through preaching. How shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So it's the purpose of God our Savior, and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the commission of the apostles 
and the duty of ministers of the gospel to preach the word and thereby to work in them faith and to give to them the riches that Christ has obtained by his own death and resurrection. So we've learned something now about the ministry of the gospel through the Apostle Paul and his office as a servant and as an apostle and as one committed with the preaching of the Word. And this should move us to have, first of all, to have a high regard for the inspired Scripture and for this epistle. This is an epistle which has been ordained to come through the mouth and pen of Paul and has been preserved providentially for thousands of years so that it might be preached among us today. The will of Christ is being made known today even as the, through this commission of Paul. Don't dismiss this, this epistle. Don't neglect this epistle. Christ Himself has given it to us. It should move us who are servants, who are office bearers, like Paul and like Titus, like myself and other preachers of the Word and men who are in the office of elder and deacon as well. We are, have not obtained this office to ourselves. We may not serve in this office unto ourselves. So we must rely upon our God who has given us this work and we must not become discouraged in the work. We may not faint when it is difficult. The God who has entrusted us with this work will qualify us with this work. But most importantly, the application that I desire for us to hold on to as a congregation is that we might stand in awe of the mercy of God and the Lord Jesus Christ in the simple fact that He gifts us with preachers. You, parents, cannot make your children ministers. You, elders, cannot make the sons of your congregation ministers. You as a congregation, try as hard as you might, think of every strategy that you can, cannot make for yourself or procure for yourself a minister. Only one can make a minister, and that is God. Only one can call a minister, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know how it is that God gives us ministers? Ministers are not free. Ministers were bought for the church by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Not only did Christ obtain the salvation that He willed to give to His people, but Christ also obtained that lofty position at God's right hand as the head of the church and all power that is given to Him. And from on high, we're taught in the epistle to the Ephesians, He gives to the church pastors and teachers. And without those ministers, God is not pleased to save. Something that I even hesitate myself to speak. When I preached it in my own church, I said, I wish I could invite someone else here, an elder or something, to make this application here. But if there's no minister in this pulpit, the 
church of God will suffer. And the church gathered here will die. Because it's through that work of preaching that we come to possess this precious treasure. Keep that in mind. In our present need for ministers, not only you as a congregation, but all of our vacant churches, keep in mind that we don't have a right to a minister. Keep in mind that we don't deserve to have a herald in our midst. Keep in mind as we pray to God, the Lord of the harvest, that we're not asking for our due when we pray, give us more ministers, raise up more men. We're pleading for a gift of God's grace. We're pleading for His mercy to be showered upon us. We're praying for some of the many benefits that Christ obtained at the cross through His own shed blood and that He now is given as a reward in heaven. We're praying, O God, the Lord Jesus, grant that those things that Thou hast obtained through Thy suffering, that they might be bestowed upon us in Thy mercy. It's not what we deserve. May it be Thy will to feed us. For the Cretes, for Titus, for true churches around the world, the reality of a minister preaching and writing this inspired epistle especially is a gift of grace included among all the gifts of salvation. In the second point of the sermon, we want to now move away from the Apostle Paul and what his commission was and what his office was, and now consider that this epistle is written for God's elect. We're really looking at the substance of the epistle now, and we are examining a finer point of Paul's office because when he describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says he's an apostle according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. All of that is explaining and more specifically describing the nature of his work and especially the interest that he has been given in doing this work. And the way I would desc- we could understand this as a whole is that Paul is an apostle. He is sent to the churches and sent out by Christ in the interests of the elect. In the interests of the elect. And now that's not found in our translation of the sermon or of the text. Our translation uses the preposition according to. According to the faith of God's elect. And according to is a preposition that describes a harmony. So that here's one thing, and then there's another thing that harmonizes with it. Harmonizes this way, or a standard that measures up. And that's the most common translation of this Greek word that's used here. And it's a a fine translation, because there is a harmony to observe, and there is a standard which measures up. And we'll see that in a moment. But the idea of the text is better better helped by a translation, a secondary translation of the word, which is, in the interests of. Instead of according to, in the interests of. And so it would read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in the interests of God's elect. When we say that there is an interest in the faith of God's elect, or we could say, with a view to the faith of God's elect, it's indicating a good goal, a purpose. What is he aiming at? Why is he doing this work of an apostle? He is working toward this one thing, and that's the faith of God's elect. And there's there's also a harmony there. An apostle is commissioned in harmony with the faith of God's elect. And that doesn't mean that the faith of God's elect is determinative for what a preacher preaches, but everything the apostle does matches up and aids and assists the faith of God's elect. And there's also a standard, a measuring up, so that 
Although there's not as though Paul is subject to whatever the people believe in Crete, and that's what he must preach, but there is a, heart, a standard here that God has set the faith of God's elect. This is the goal of the work. And now, Paul, everything you do must serve the faith of God's elect. Do not depart in any way from those things which serve the faith of God's elect. So it's a good translation. It's more readily understood when we, when we see that it's indicating a purpose or a mission or his interests. What is the apostle aiming for? Before we look at what he's aiming for, whose interests are in view? God's elect. God's elect are those who stand to benefit from the service of God's servant. God's elect are those who may be encouraged by the promises that God reveals in the preaching. Only God's elect. The reprobate will not benefit from the apostolic work of Paul. The reprobate will not benefit from the preaching of the Gospel in this church or in any church under heaven. Only those who have been sovereignly chosen by God's unchangeable decree, chosen to salvation in Christ according to His good pleasure. And because election is the, saving, the fountain of every saving good and Christ's cross is the basis for sinners to receive that saving good, then when God sends His instruments, His office bearers to preach the Word, it is sure that they shall receive the benefits that Christ has obtained. Even the benefit of preachers and preaching through which God works faith and they receive all the other benefits. So this was meant for the encouragement of Titus as well. Titus, Titus didn't need to be introduced to the idea of election. He knew Paul. He knew why he labored. But now it's set before him, in the, as it were, in the presence of the Cretes. Titus, this epistle, my labor, your ministry, is for God's elect. It is for those particular persons whom God has chosen and whom Christ has redeemed. Your ministry, like my ministry, will not fail. The Word of God will never return void. And when the Word of God goes out where God has His people, it will surely bear good fruit. I write to you, Titus, in the interests only of the elect. There are three phrases in this part of the text, verses 2 and 3, that, or verses 1 and 2, that describe the particular benefits that the apostle labors in the interest, labors for in the interest of God's elect. The first is that he is an apostle in the interest of the faith of God's elect. Faith is another benefit earned by the cross of Jesus Christ. Another benefit that flows out of the fountain of election. And faith is that which binds God's chosen ones to Jesus Christ. And subsequently, it is the certain knowledge and the hearty confidence that all the promises of God's Word and the benefits of Jesus Christ are not only for others, but for me. Faith is that union that we have with Christ, and also it is that inner conviction of heart that what God reveals in His Word that is good and in Christ is for me and I possess it by that faith. And that faith comes by hearing. And hearing Christ's voice and hearing Christ's Word and hearing Christ's voice through these mouthpieces. The apostle labors in the interests of their faith that there might be faith amongst God's elect. There are God's elect who have not faith. They must be brought through the preaching to that conscious and hearty conviction, that knowledge and conviction of faith. It must be worked in their heart, kindled by the Holy Spirit. And also, this is not merely the first implanting of this gift of faith, but also 
the maturity of their faith. He labors in the interests of the faith of God's elect. So, one is sent among them, even who believe, and we can say, it is good for us to receive this One, God's servant, because the Word He preaches is for the building up of our faith, for the strengthening of our faith. Because week after week, as we hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and we come to understand His suffering, His death, His resurrection, and His reign, our faith grows and is enlarged. And when he says he is an apostle in the interests of the faith of God's elect, he's declaring to Titus and to the Cretes, I'm here in the interest of your salvation. I write in the interest of your communion with Jesus Christ. I write and I preach so that you might be made rich and you might have all these benefits. And he's also, as he says that, he is in perfect harmony with the will of God and not in the least departing from His call to service. I will do everything I can to build up your faith. Not because that's what I want, though I do. Not because that's what you may desire, though by the grace of God you do. But because it's the will of God. It's His will that you should have a strong faith. Second phrase which describes his office is that what immediately follows and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. This is a second object of the preposition. So the preposition is in the interest of or according to. And not only does he labor in the interest of the faith of God's elect, but he also labors in the interest of acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. And to speak of their acknowledging of the truth is, to, is redundant. It's emphasizing what element of faith that he is interested in. He is interested not only in their communion with Christ, the faculty of faith, but also in the activity of faith. The activity of faith which is as it comes to expression and comes to confession. I acknowledge now from my heart out of faith that what God has revealed I believe to be true, and I believe to be for me. The acknowledgement of the truth. But what's really added here is that this faith is not an end all by itself. This faith is fruitful. This truth, which is after godliness. That's the same preposition as what's translated earlier in the verse as according to. Now it's translated after. In both cases, we can understand it as in the interests of. He's an apostle in the interests of the faith of God's elect. He's an apostle in the interests of their acknowledging the truth, which is in the interest of godliness. The truth is for godliness. The truth never conflicts with godliness. Never contradicts godliness. Never undermines godliness. Never gives license to ungodliness. The truth always harmonizes with and promotes and measures up to and serves godliness. And if there's any doubt about this relationship of harmony between truth and the acknowledging of truth and godliness, just remember that Jesus Christ, out of His own mouth, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth. And just remember also that the Apostle to Timothy wrote about the great mystery of godliness. It's a great mystery. What is godliness? How can we come to know godliness? God manifest in flesh. Jesus. 
There is no conflict. There is no contradiction between truth and godliness. Godliness harmonizes with truth. Truth promotes and serves and equips for godliness. And when the apostle labors in the interests of their acknowledging of the truth, it goes without saying, really, that he labors in the interests of their godliness. It's quite astounding that he could even write this to Titus for God's elect among the Cretes. Because, you know, we read what the Cretes were like. The Cretes, well, one of the Cretes themselves said it. Paul didn't even have to say it. One of the Cretes themselves, a prophet, one who tells the truth, says, the Cretes are always liars, slow, evil beasts, and slow bellies. These people who are always liars, so that is, say the Cretes themselves were always liars. Paul goes, sends Titus and places him among the liars and says, labor with me in the interest that they would acknowledge the truth. And to these evil beasts and slow bellies, he, he says to Titus, I labor and you with me, my genuine son can labor with me, that these evil beasts and slow bellies will acknowledge the truth and live godly. This can only be realized according to the power of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And it could only ever be even imagined by the Apostle Paul and Titus. He never would have dared to labor with such a lofty goal in Crete. Except God had ordained it from all eternity. May God so work among us. Not only in the interest of the acknowledging of the truth, but in the interest of the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. And may those good fruits that go all the way back to that fountain of election be manifest here in our homes, in our church, amongst our children. A confession of the truth. A confession of Christ's name. And a life patterned after Christ's life. And as he labors, a third phrase that describes his office really is a little bit different. He labors in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. This is describing the basis with, uh, of his hope. He labors on the basis, labors with confidence on the basis of the hope of eternal life that God has promised. That's the only way God could be so, or Paul could be so bold to go out among the godless and labor for godliness. It's the only way he could be so confident leaving Titus amongst the evil beasts and slow bellies and the uncircumcised gainsay or the circumcised gainsayers who stand in the way of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He labors in the confidence that God has promised eternal life. And there's really an argument here from the greater to the lesser. If God has, before the world began, promised eternal life, and we have hope of eternal life for ourselves and all of God's elect, how much more ought we to be confident that He will work faith and godliness in our lives now? and preserve us in faith and godliness. So the work of the ministry here, we're taught that it's not a speculative work. It's not a pipe dream. It's, the preacher is not a prospector wondering if he might stumble upon some gold, hoping that maybe he's got a good crop of people here that might actually do some good instead of some evil, hoping that they'll be receptive. No, he labors in hope. Hope of eternal life for himself and the whole body of Christ. He goes and he sends Titus and he, he reminds Titus, Titus, I labor in hope. And you ought to labor in hope too because the salvation which we proclaim in Jesus has been promised before the world began. It's an immutable promise. God cannot lie gave that promise. The preacher must labor in confidence in the congregation. And he must labor with urgency knowing that the goal set before him and before them is eternal life itself. 
The preacher is emboldened by the promise and will not fall back for anything seeing this good prize ahead of him. Learning more about this apostolic office and the apostles' interest in the good of God's elect, there's really three brief applications that I can make here. First of all, receive God's servant because you're excited about their mission. Receive God's servant and be attentive to sermons preached from this pulpit. Not because you love the man in the pulpit. Not because you love the way he preaches. Not because he is able to keep your interest up. But receive the Word that's proclaimed because you're confident in this. What the Bible declares is the interest of the Apostle or the interest of the pastor. It's for our good and the good of our children being convicted that God saves in our generations. A second brief application, receive God's Word, the written Word, and read it, being excited by the way God uses that Word and by the fact that God has given that Word through these servants. And make applications to yourselves, to your faith, and to your godly walk. Be humble before the Word and be corrected in your faith and in your walk by the Word. And a third brief application is for the young men who ought to be considering whether you have the gifts for the ministry. And it's encouragement to me and to all men who serve in the office of ministry. And that's to receive God's commission to that work with confidence and with gratitude and to carry on in that work with hope. Ministers will become discouraged. I can speak from experience. When we lose sight of the certain and blessed aim of the work we've been given to do. But even even ministers in their lowliest moments, they are anchored by that sure hope. And they persevere in the confidence that the promises of the unlying God are bought with the price of precious blood. Encourage your minister when God is pleased to give you one. They do a good work. Work which is good for us by God's grace. Now we turn to finally in the third place to Titus, the one addressed in the epistle. And the direct application is to Titus. We understand now that it's also for God's elect in Crete and wherever they may be found. And he identifies Titus as his own, his own son after the common faith. That idea is that this is a genuine son. He's really my son. He is of the same character to me. He has the same motivation, the same interest. And he labors with the same hope. And he preaches the same word. He carries with him that same treasure as he ministers among you. He's declaring the the promises of God fulfilled. Yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And by addressing it to Titus, he's really saying something more to the Cretes than to Titus. He's saying, I recommend Titus to you. And I recommend him to the work that I describe here in this epistle. Receive Him like you would receive me. Receive, and you would receive me as you'd receive Jesus Christ. But what I'll focus on in conclusion is that this address to Titus consists mainly of a blessing pronounced upon Titus. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. This is a blessing that we're familiar with, but we need to step back and now understand it. This is the blessing of Titus. It's the blessing of a minister. This is the need of Titus and every minister of the Word. They will fail. They will faint. They will be unfaithful. They will be unfruitful. 
apart from this blessing. And so as it were with hands raised, the Apostle Paul says, you, Titus, this is for you. Grace. Upon you is the undeserved favor of God and Christ. Upon you who are a sinful servant. And Titus would receive it this way. I who am a sinner. I who have no strength of my own. I who am utterly powerless for these lofty goals that are before me. I've been given God's grace. And I will do my work mindful of that God's grace is bestowed through this blessing. And mercy... Mercy is upon Titus. That pitiful, compassionate blessing of pardon for his sins that a minister needs when he comes up into the pulpit and a minister needs when he's in his study after he just was confronted in his own home with his own sin. He needs to be reminded, I labor not as one who is worthy, but as one who is blessed by the all-merciful God. And who needs the mercy of God not only to give him pardon for his sin, but to sustain him and uplift him in all the demands of the work. I can't do all this work. I can't continue day after day. There's too much. It's too difficult. It weighs on my soul. It overflows my mind. I can't do it, but the mercy of God is pronounced upon me by God's servant. And a minister labors with the confidence that God will mercifully uphold me in this work. And peace is pronounced upon Titus, the minister. Peace which he needs because he's always going to and fro like he was on the ship as he sailed to Crete. He needs to be settled in his soul so that he can focus on the good, the good goal that is before him. He needs to be discerning and stable so that he can be clear and precise and be helpful and not a distraction to the church. He needs that peace so that as he looks to heaven his master and sees his master, he may know I'm at peace with God. The anger of God's been turned away. I can serve Him at peace with Him. And he can look at the congregation and know that God is using one whom He has proclaimed acceptable. God will use me for for your good. So Titus, by this blessing, is both equipped and also admonished to labor according to God's grace, relying on God's mercy, and enjoying God's peace. And ministers need the blessing of God. Is that important for the congregation? It is. Be thankful that God's servants are given God's blessing. Under God's blessing and with God's blessing, they're working towards that good goal. They're laboring in the interest of your faith. They're laboring in the interest of your acknowledging the truth which is after godliness. They're laboring in the interest of you and your children and those who come after your children. You need ministers who labor for those goals with God's blessing. We have a need for ministers. You have a need for ministers. Who can do the work? Among you elders, who can do the work? Who will want to do the work? Encourage one another. Encourage men of godly character to pursue the ministry of the Gospel and hold before them the blessing. Tell them 
Remember, brother, or did you know, my son, that when you do the work of the minister, you labor with the blessing of grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a good work. And under that blessing, it is a fruitful work. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, may Thy blessing be upon all those faithful servants, not because they are worthy, but according to Thy will. Thy will to save Thy own chosen ones through the blood of Jesus, even through the means of preachers and preaching. And take not that word from us and and use this word to build up and even to call in the hearts of young men here. Call them to the ministry of the word and a labor for the faith of thy elect. Amen.